Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 64, and that's found on page 833 in the Bibles that we provide. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you to the living, by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The word of the Lord. And if you turn with me now to Revelation, that's chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, and that's found on page 1039 in the Bibles that we provide. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The word of the Lord. Well, we've been in a summer series on the Psalms. So if you uh, have missed a few weeks here or there, uh, you're in luck because whatever Psalm we did doesn't have anything to do with this Psalm. So that's good, right? Um, this is Psalm 96. It's a, a famous psalm in some respects. Uh, it, you'll see in it referenced quite a bit nations or peoples or families. And it's, it's ironic in that it would have been sung by ancient Israel, but it was for all nations. So everyone is in view here in Psalm 96. It's a royal psalm. That's the theme of the psalm we're looking at today. It's a royal psalm because we'll see that God is king over not just Israel, but all nations. So let us read together, Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. 
Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, have you ever wanted to make something so well known that you would do whatever it took to make it known? One particular example from my life just down the road, when I was a freshman at UT, first week in presidential courtyard, there are tons of campus groups and campus ministries that are trying to get your attention. They've set up little booths and they're all trying to do whatever they can to get your attention to at least come over to their booth and talk to them. And one in particular stood out to me my first week of college. From across the courtyard, I saw a sign that said, beer, fish, and chips. And that was curious to me because it looked like a Christian ministry, and after all, freshmen are underage, so beer, fish, and chips, that was unusual. So I said, I have to go at least see what that's about, right? So I walk closer, and eventually I can see that there are small letters inscribed above beer and fish, so I get closer and closer, and eventually I can read that there are words above beer and fish, and above beer it said root in small letters, and above fish it said gold in small letters. In other words, they were handing out root beer and goldfish, but they were trying to get our attention. They were doing whatever it took to make us come talk to them, and it worked because I went and talked to them, and I wound up getting involved with that ministry, and uh, Doug Messer, our, one of our own ministers here at Cedar Springs, was one of those people with that sign, so you can blame him. I asked his permission to tell this story. He didn't even remember it, but yeah, they did whatever it took to get a college freshman's attention. Maybe that's been you before. Maybe you run a small business and you've done whatever it takes to advertise your business. Or you're a proud grandparent and you tell people all the time about your grandkids' athletic exploits and everybody has to know about it. Or maybe you've been struggling to find a job and you'll put your resume on anyone's desk. You bring your resume to church even. You just will do whatever it takes to make yourself known. These are all good things to make known. Our psalm this morning says we should do whatever it takes to make God known. If all those are good things to be made known, how much more so a loving and good king of the universe who we should make known? If he's the loving and good king of the universe, he's the most important thing to be made known. And so this psalm commends several ways to make him known. First way to make him known is sing of him. The second way to make him known is to declare him. The third way to make him known among all nations is to compare him to other gods. And the last way is he'll be made known himself when he comes again. So God will be king. We will know that God is king, and all nations will know that God is king when we sing of him, declare him, compare him to other gods, and when we actually see him return on earth someday. So look back at me me with, with me to verses one and two. What's the first way that all nations will know that God is king? When we sing of him. You see three exhortations to sing to the Lord. Right there in verses one and two, three three exhortations. Sing to the Lord, a new song to all the earth. This is interesting because, and somewhat ironic, because a psalm is a song that ancient Israel would have sung together. They would have sung it. These weren't just preached about or said out loud, they were sung. And the irony is this is a song that starts out with an exhortation to people who weren't even a part of Israel to sing some more. So there's a song encouraging more singing. 
to all the earth. They're saying, in, in the singing, God is made known. The singing is its own intrinsic argument that God will be sung in all of the earth. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in 1964, Marshall McLuhan, a philosopher, came up with a famous phrase that we say in different ways around our culture now. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. And what McLuhan meant by that was that the way a message comes to us by radio, television, social media, is just as important as what the actual message says. The way a message comes is just as important as what it says. The medium is the message. Let me uh, illustrate here. I, I could recite to you a famous English poem from the 1700s, which is actually based on verses 10 through 13 in our psalm here today. Famous English, English poem. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Perhaps that was familiar to some of you. This is psalm. Part of it is based on something that would be more familiar if I actually sung it. So yeah, I'm going to sing it. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Now, I'm not going to keep singing. Okay, that's all you get this morning. My point is you were recognized it. Many more of you recognized it when I started singing it. You didn't expect Christmas in July at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church this morning, but you got it. The actual song enhances the meaning of the words. The medium is the message. When that melody is carried with those words, it takes you to a different place, and the meaning is enhanced. This is what the psalmist means when he's saying, all right, let's sing a song about singing some more to all the earth, because in the singing, God will make himself known among all nations, and we're commending all the nations to join us in the song. There's an intrinsic power in the singing that makes God known. Well, why does this matter so much? Why does it matter that the psalmist would commend us to sing so much? I've got a couple reasons for you. The first is in verse four itself. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The Lord is great. He's just great. He's awesome. He's wonderful. Great can mean big. It can also mean how lovely and wonderful. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. In and of itself, when something is so exciting, we just can't help but make it audible. C.S. Lewis says this, he's the great 20th century writer. He wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms, and in it he says, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their beloved, readers their favorite poet, and author, players praising their favorite game. Praise is inner health made audible. Praise is inner health made audible. In other words, we praise what we love in front of other people. We just, we just it just comes out of us. We, we sing of it, we praise it. When we are excited about something, it doesn't matter. It could be about God, it could be about anything. We make it audible. Mmm, this french fry is so good. You've got to try it. Whatever it is, we, whatever we love, we praise his inner health made audible. So one reason that it's important to sing to God among the nations and to make him sung among the nations is, is just that that's who we are. We're people who love God and, and want to love him. And so it just naturally should burst out into song. The next reason why it's important to sing of God among the nations is perhaps a little more philosophical. It's that singing is the art form that probably best exemplifies unity. 
There are communal forms of other art. There's communal forms of dancing, and, and line dancing is a good southern version of that. And there are communal forms of painting and other things. But singing, I think, is the best form that it, of art that exemplifies our unity. You've probably experienced this if you've ever been to a concert, especially an arena-level concert. Maybe you've been to a U2 concert, and they tend to do it really well and, and very well-known kind of way. And it can be a transcendent experience. I've heard even people who aren't Christians talk about arena-level rock experiences being a spiritual experience because when everybody's singing together, there's a unity that you can't find in any other way. And brothers and sisters, every Sunday morning, there's a king of the universe and we have an opportunity to sing of him. You two's great. You might get that experience once or twice in your life or maybe you got really excited about the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree release and the new tour that's going around. I know some of you who have actually gotten to go on some of those concerts, but every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, we get to sing to the king of the universe and declare him among the nations. Singing is its own argument for how wonderful God is, both in the fact that it exemplifies how much we love him, and secondly, by the fact that we sing together. So just a couple of commendations for you then. Take singing on Sunday morning seriously. Even for those of you who are not naturally musical, sing heartily. It's important. The second thing I would say is sing among the nations. Sing all the earth, all the earth. Let us also continue to take seriously Cedar Springs' partners and mission around the world. It's important that we support and financially and pray for the works around the world of other churches and new churches that are starting so that they can also sing of our God around the world. Just a couple simple points, but when we sing of God, all nations will know that he is truly king in a different way than any other way. So that's the first point. The second point is all nations will see that God is king when we declare him among the nations. You get that in verse three and a couple of other places. Verse three says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Uh, declare, shout it aloud, make it known. Uh, when the psalmist uses the word works, he doesn't just mean uh, just every, every day, everyday average works. He really means miraculous works. And so in the Old Testament, he would have had in mind the exodus and the miraculous leaving of Israel from Egypt. And now in hindsight, that we're on the other side of Jesus Christ's cross and resurrection, those are the marvelous works we can declare among the nations. And then in verse 7, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe means bestow. In other words, give credit where credit is due. When there really is a God who's king of the universe and he demonstrates that in his works in history, like the resurrection being the most important event in human history, let's ascribe to the Lord his credit. He deserves that. Now, I want to connect two dots for you then. If we uh, sing of the Lord and declare him, this begins to sound a lot like church. Singing, declaring, I'm up here, I'm declaring. And so I want to offer a shameless plug to you. Shameless plug. Uh, I hope you'll forgive it. I think a part of what the psalmist is commending here to us is church planting, starting new churches where new groups of people sing and declare the Lord in neighborhoods around the world or maybe schools as it will be in our case where people 
sing and proclaim God in a way that that neighborhood hasn't seen or that school hasn't seen and can serve the people in that area in a way that they haven't been served yet. And they get the, the opportunity to declare his name among the nations, his marvelous works. So, you know, you get to church planter guy, he's going to talk about church planting a little bit, right? Why is that so important? I'll give you two reasons really quick to consider the importance of church planting just because I'm the guy in front of you doing it and I'm doing it out in Blount County with, a, with an awesome group of people. Two reasons why this psalm is, has church planting in mind. One is theological and the other is sociological. The theological is when you put a group of people into a neighborhood or a school or a place where there's not been a church, there's an opportunity to bless that particular locale in a way that there hasn't been yet because God is specially present in a group of people more than he is in a solitary Christian way. As I said, even going backwards, to singing in unity, God, we can make God more manifest. And when we sing and declare him, he also makes himself present to us in a group. So I believe that God makes himself more manifest in even if a church is meeting in a school, it can be a blessing to that school simply and intrinsically because a church is meeting there. The second reason is sociological. Why am I talking about church planting? Why is it important to sing and declare as new groups of new churches somewhere else? The sociological reason is this. When you put a group of people together for a new purpose in a new place, they begin to experience the reality of what they're doing together in a way that encompasses their whole life. So you get a group of people together to start a new church, and they're going to start thinking about their neighbors and their coworkers differently. They're going to start thinking about where that church is meeting differently and that neighborhood differently. And they're going to start taking their faith seriously. Church just won't be something that they go to. It won't just be an event for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It'll be a part of their entire reality, and they'll do whatever it takes to share Jesus and his church with those people. We've already begun to see this with New Life Gathering and Scott Jackson, who, uh, former associate pastor here, who's planted one of the churches in the Bearden area on behalf of Cedar Springs. And I don't want to steal any thunder from them, but people who have been at Cedar Springs for decades are now sharing their, their lives with other people, and they have experienced, that church has experienced many faith conversions to Jesus as a result. Because that's the sociological reason. You put a group of people where they haven't been before, the Knoxville Lighthouse and all of a sudden, they're thinking and, and feeling about church differently. It's not just an event on Sunday morning, and now they love what they're doing. So when the psalmist says to sing and declare him among all nations, all peoples, and people who don't know Jesus, that's exactly what they're doing at New Life Gathering. So I want to commend that to you to say we should be serious about church planting. But I also want to offer at least a word of comfort. If you're skeptical of Christianity this morning, or maybe you are... Uh, not sure of what this is talking, what I'm talking about, or you're ambivalent about Christianity, or maybe you're curious, that whole conversation can sound a little off-putting, right? Uh, I'm talking about spreading Jesus's name and people making faith conversions, and it sounds a little imperialistic, but I want to assure you that doing anything in a group makes something more plausible. Doing anything in a group makes something more plausible. Uh, for instance, we all have uh, pity on the person who goes and does karaoke by themselves. That's some, that's, you know, maybe that's you, maybe you love karaoke, and that's okay, I'm not putting that down, but most people wouldn't naturally do karaoke by themselves. It always happens in a group. Well, you know, they're up there making a fool of themselves, so I might as well go too. 
Or the same thing about dancing. Dancing is not necessarily something I love, but in the summer, lots of people get married and you go to their wedding reception and people seem to be dancing and they're in a group. And so you just find it more plausible to join and make a fool of yourself and decide just not to care for this one evening to dance in front of other people. Anything is more plausible in a group of people who love what they're doing. How much more plausible than a group of people who want to declare the Lord who lived perfectly for us, died for us, rose for us. Most important thing in the world. So anything is more plausible in a group. doesn't matter what kind of group. But that's why starting new churches is important. That's also why taking your own church seriously is important. By seeing church as more than just an event on Sunday morning. Friends, if that's you, I would encourage you that you haven't experienced Cedar Springs until you've experienced the people of Cedar Springs. I would commend to you a community group or a small group or one of our Sunday school classes here on Sunday morning. Get to know people. Become a part of the fabric of this church so that your singing and your declaration in a group becomes more tangibly, tangibly powerful to the people around you. So those are the first two things. God, all nations will know that God is king when we sing and declare him among the nations. The third thing is a little more controversial because all nations will know that God is king when we compare him to the other gods. When we compare him to the other gods. You can see this halfway through verse 4 where it says, He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Right there is fighting language, to use old southern term. That's fighting language, worthless idols. I'm supposed to be singing this among the nations. Think about this. The psalm is meant to be sung among the nations, and then the psalmist kind of throws down the gauntlet and says, yeah, well, you kind of all believe in worthless idols anyway. This is not even how Christians speak in a pluralist society. It's just not very polite to say, well, someone else's beliefs are worthless idols. Even uh, commentator John Golden Gay renders worthless idols non-entities. And that's really where I come to understand what's really going on here. Non-entities are really vanity or a showy affair. What the psalmist is really saying is it's, it's not a comparison of whose religion is true and whose is false. It's really a, a saying of other gods that just don't have any power. They're non-entity because they don't really exist. Let me take the edge off of this, especially for you, those of you who might not be Christians in, in the room this morning, this can sound very offensive again. The psalmist is being very direct. He, he doesn't seem to care very much about other people's belief systems. But what he's really saying is other gods just don't have power. And that can be anything. That doesn't have to even be a formal belief system. For me, a few weeks ago, that was going to the beach. The beach held this special power for me that I would find this deep relaxation, that I would find this stress-free comfort that would endure over months. And I was going to the beach because I thought the beach offered me this power to give me this deep rest that I really, really have been questing for. Now, this is all subconscious thoughts, right? But it, I still kind of believed that the beach can offer me this deep rest. And no, 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 only God can offer me deep rest. So of course, I'm at the beach and I'm still worrying about our church plant in Blunt County and I'm worrying about all these other things. I'm worrying about my children drowning in the ocean and the beach doesn't quite offer me the rest that I'm looking for. It was powerless. 
That's no offense to say it's a worthless idol. The beach as a beach is great. The beach as a God is terrible. Right? The beach as a beach is great, but the beach as a God is terrible. That's, that's what the psalmist is saying here. Whatever you think has the power to give you what you want in the most deep sense is ultimately powerless. It's worthless. It's, it's just a vanity. It's a non-entity. What are those things for you this morning? What are those things that you think have the power to give you something of deep meaning, but they're failing you right now? I'll ask the question again. What are those things in your life that you think have the power to give you deep meaning, but are failing you at the moment? This is not just a Christian or non-Christian thing. Religious people do this all the time. I do it with the beach. I want to encourage you then to compare it to the other God. The verse five, the end of verse five says, but the Lord made the heavens. He's the really powerful one. He made everything that is. He can actually give you the deepest thing that you really, really want in your heart. When we compare our gods and the nation's gods and the people who don't know Jesus as gods with the one true God who made everything and all that is and who really did rise from the dead in the person of Jesus Christ, all those other gods pale in comparison. All those other gods pale in comparison. So whatever you're staking your power on this morning, I would encourage you to try to identify that in your heart and compare it to the one God who can do everything. This is a part of what it means for all nations to see that God is king, that he has a power to do what he says he's going to do. And then there's the last point. Christianity has been going on for some time, and Judaism has been going on for some time before that. So all nations have been singing and declaring and comparing the one true God to other gods for a long time now. How come everybody doesn't see that God is king? The answer to that question, I, I think, lies with this fact, that we are still waiting for God to come back in the person of Jesus a second time and to make himself known to come back. That's when everybody's going to know. Let's look at verses 10 through 13 again. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is where we get the idea that this is a royal psalm, a kingship psalm. He's reigning. He's reigning anyway, whether we know it or not. That's an important point. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Skip down to verse 13. Uh, Before the Lord, for he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The psalmist is crying out, God, come, come. Uh, commentators debate when this psalm was actually written. Some people think it was written uh, during the exile or right after the exile. So Israel has returned to the promised land after all of their ex- uh, exile, but there's not been a kingship restored. So Israel's longing for a king. Their whole kingdom's been destroyed, and so they're longing for God to come back as king to make it all right again. And this is where you get, which, which is hard to our modern ears, this excitement about judging. In our cultural context, we don't get excited about judgmentalism, but the psalmist is saying, come judge us. What he's really saying is make everything right again. Put everything in its proper place because we can't do it. We can't do it. Come 
Let's get excited about the fact that you're going to judge with equity, that there's going to be righteousness and faithfulness everywhere. We need it. We don't have it. We can't do it ourselves. Though we don't typically think about getting excited about coming, someone coming to judge, at heart we are a messianic people. We are hopelessly messianic. And when I say we, I mean human beings. It's been a part of our story going all the way back. You can go all the way back to tales like Beowulf, all the way forward to the 20th century with a story like Lord of the Rings, and the final book is called Return of the King. We're, we're longing for that one person who's going to finally come and make it all right, who's going to bring peace where there's hostility, to bring order where there's chaos, to bring justice where there's injustice. We even get this way every four years where we heap messianic expectations on very fallible presidential candidates. We do this, don't we? We heap messianic expectations because we're hopelessly messianic people. We even make up stories like this, hoping a king will come back someday to finally make it all right. One of the more famous stories in Western history is the story of King Arthur, who comes out of nowhere around the 6th century, so it is believed, this is all legend, and he unites all the people of Britain against their enemies. There is social wholeness, there is peace, there is the Knights of the Round Table. We even associate golden eras now with the term Camelot. And King Arthur, according to legend, there are debates in the legend whether King Arthur was wounded and went away to an island or whether he died. But an old British author named Sir Thomas Mallory entitled King Arthur the once and future king. Because in legend, after Arthur left or died, uh, you know, all of Britain descended back into chaos. And so Sir Thomas Mallory labels him famously the once and future king, which a later author in the 20th century titles a book making fun of the whole story anyway, the once and future king, saying we are longing for this king to come back because it was great when the king was there and we got to have the king back. He's the once king and he's also the future king. We'll even make up stories about it. In 2008, USA Today labeled King Arthur the third most influential person to never have lived. Because in England, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they longed for King Arthur to come back, to be the future king, to restore peace to the whole kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, in Jesus Christ, we have a true once and future king who came once a first time, who lived a perfect life and died for us and rose perfectly for us. And he's, he even said it, he will come back for us. And he's not just gonna come back for one nation, he's gonna come back for all nations, as this Psalm talks about. He's gonna come back so that everybody's gonna know that he's the king. Every knee's gonna bow on the earth and under the earth. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not, this will happen. So I hope and pray that you know him. Because he is that once and future king. And he's not just going to come back for all nations. He's going to come back for you. All the human ways we try to seek utopia in this world, whether through totalitarianism or representative democracy or better and better and better and better technology, we think all these things will eventually save us, and they won't. They've all failed. And Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to restore it all, bring justice where there is injustice, bring order where there is chaos, and peace where there is hostility. This is the king we're longing for to come back, and he's going to come back for us. And all the ways that we fail, he's going to come back for us. And all the ways we fail to 
sing him and declare him. He's going to come back and make our singing and declaring inevitable because we're just going to see how great he is in the flesh. In all the ways we strive after worthless gods, he's going to come back and prove to us that he is the only true God anyway because he's going to come back and that's what it's all about when he comes back. We will sing and declare him. We will shed the false gods and we will see him as the true king he is for all nations. Just want to leave you with a couple thoughts then. First, we need to know that Christ's coming again in judgment is good news. We don't typically like judgment, but it's good news because he's going to put everything in its proper place. The second thing is we need to stop pretending that we are the good news. It is very common for white American Christians to think this way, that we are the ones who are the, are the good news. You'll even hear people say, we just need to live the gospel. No, we don't. Only Jesus lived the gospel. We respond to the gospel. And so how do we do that? We respond with our singing, our proclamation, our obedience to Jesus, and longing for him to come again. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. One of the most common prayers of the New Testament. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back for us. Let's pray. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need you. I pray you would help us all search our hearts this morning to identify those places where we could readily say, this is where I need you, whether in circumstances or in false beliefs or in worthless gods. Make yourself known among all nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.